Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. It's the peak of summer here in Canada and in the rest of the Northern Hemisphere. It's usually a time to relax and enjoy the outdoors. But stepping outside right now in many parts of the world is a hazard to your health. Extreme heat and smoky haze from wildfires are becoming more widespread, more frequent, and more intense due to climate change. Today, we'll hear from an emergency room doctor in Yellowknife on the medical costs and ways to adapt. And if it's not fire, it's floods or drought. Science journalist Erica Guise has just released a book about what water wants. And she's got plenty of ideas gathered from around the world that work with water to ensure it's part of a safer, healthier world. Also today, many are used to hearing a regular stream of economic data from Statistics Canada. Now there's a push to treat climate figures the same way, including quarterly emissions reports along with those GDP numbers. And a new happy development for a paramedic championing the cause of electric ambulances, emissions-free frontline medical care. Welcome to What on Earth, I'm Laura Lynch. The impact of burning fossil fuels continues to show up in more extreme weather, deadly heat around the world, in China and across Europe. Europe is on fire. With dry conditions sparking fires in Portugal, Greece, Italy, France and England. Across Canada, fires continue to rage in northern Manitoba. I saw like smoke in uh, fires when I was like flying high up in the sky in a plane. Just days ago, nearly 2,000 people from Matthias Cologne Cree Nation were forced from their homes because of a 230 square kilometer wildfire. In the Northwest Territories, wildfires have caused highways to close, ferries to stop running, and ash to fall like rain from the sky. Communities in the North are no strangers to dealing with the smoke. Dr. Courtney Howard is an emergency physician in Yellowknife. She was also working in the emergency department in 2014 when the territory experienced an extreme wildfire season. Dr. Courtney Howard, hello. Hi, Laura. Thanks for having me. Now, the Northwest Territories has been dealing with a steady season of wildfires so far. What's it like where you are in Yellowknife? Right now, the air is blessedly clear, but it's been smoky enough, enough days that it's, we wake up and we think, oh, yay, it's a lovely, clear, sunny day. Instead of taking it for granted the way we have before, we've definitely had some days where we had to close all the windows and the doors and turn on the air purifiers that many of us have just bought and try to coax our children into staying inside instead of going outside and running around. So it's certainly not been as bad as 2014 was here, but it was enough to give us the heads up that we're going to have to keep planning for longer, smokier summers. Yeah, and we'll get into that. But just tell me first, how are things in the emergency department? 
Well, like many other emergency departments around Canada, we're seeing a real shortage of staff. So our nurses are exhausted. Many people went a couple of years without a vacation. And so it's been coping upon coping upon coping. And uh, we're having trouble staffing everything. We've kept our eMERGE open. We are 1,500 kilometers north of Edmonton, so closing is not really an option, but certainly we're having to do staffing arrangements we've never done before. And I just want to say thank you to all of the doctors and nurses from across Canada who have come up north to help us stay open and serve the northern people. Uh, How close to capacity is the emergency room? We've been busy. We were all isolated for so long that not only COVID didn't get transmitted, but a lot of other respiratory uh, viruses didn't get transmitted. And now that everybody's back together, we're seeing huge, very unseasonable numbers of things like respiratory syncytial virus and influenza B, as well as COVID. And so lots of families who had babies at the beginning of the pandemic had never had a child with an ear infection or a runny nose before. And so there's a lot of sort of two years worth of uh, parental counseling, two years worth of babies developing immunity to all these other viruses. And uh, this is, of course, coming at a time when the healthcare system is stretched and people are tired. So you've got all of, all of that that you're dealing with and the smoke layered on top of everything else. I'm wondering what this is like for you experiencing the wildfires working in this already very crowded ER. It's definitely made summers challenging. I, as you know, have roles locally and also nationally and internationally. So I'm working as uh, part of the disaster table at the National Adaptation Strategy. So we had a call this morning around that. Uh, I'm helping to... And can you tell me what the National Adaptation Strategy is, just briefly? Sure. So very much to Canada's credit... Right when we were starting to see these very, very intense heat emergencies and wildfires emerging, we started to have a much more concrete conversation around adaptation. So adapting to the effects of climate change that we've already signed up for. We know that based on intergovernmental panel on climate change projections, we're going to see continued warming under even the very low emission scenario until at least mid-century. And of course, here in Canada, that's happening at double the global rate. Here where I live, it's happening at triple the global rate. So our best case scenario here is to prepare for the changes in temperature and precipitation that we know we're going to see until mid-century at the same time as we are emergently decreasing greenhouse gas emissions. And so there's work on all fronts. There's an adaptation sprint and a mitigation sprint. But the adaptation strategy, there's uh, five different tables with focuses around health, uh, economics, disasters, and several other topics who are gathering some of the best, most experienced minds in Canada, very multidisciplinary on these topics to ensure that we can prepare for the changing heat and precipitation that we're already seeing. So on our table, we're working a lot on flood and heat and fire and making sure that we can anticipate risks, brief the most vulnerable communities, come up with programs and have really, really specific targets as to what we want to see in five years, 10 years, 15 years for Canada in terms of our preparation and reduction of risk from the climate impacts we know we're already going to have. Well, okay. in that context, then what, what conversations are you having about how cities and towns across the country can stay safer during wildfire season? So when it comes to wildfires, we want to see this, the low level of mortality maintained in the face of the increasing risk. So we're seeing a lot of evacuations. We're seeing really a lot of impacts from smoke. But to this point, in terms of acute mortality, trauma-related deaths from wildfires, those have been low, and we want to make sure that stays low. 
And we also want to make sure that we develop some uh, regulations around smoke that can help us decrease exposure because as the academic literature develops around smoke, it's becoming apparent that it does definitely increase levels of respiratory problems. So here in Yellowknife in 2014, we saw a full doubling of emergency department visits for asthma and a 50% increase in visits for pneumonia. One of our pharmacies ran out of uh, one of the breathing medicines that we prescribe for people with breathing problems. But we're also appreciating that uh, it likely increases uh, risk for cardiovascular disease um, and that some of the studies are showing some impacts around preterm births. And a couple have now come out showing lingering impacts. So two years after a um, U.S. exposure, they did a study and found that people still had decreases in lung function. And that definitely aligns with what I hear. And so we're conscious that we're only just learning the extent of the impacts of the smoke. And so we want to make sure that we minimize people's exposure. Now, you mentioned that this year isn't as bad as 2014 was, but, but how likely is it to get as bad as 2014 this year? That's the kind of question that I I find from a mental health standpoint, and I know a lot of people are struggling with this. I like to zoom in and zoom out. And so wake up to the nice day and give real thanks for the nice day and then ask myself, okay, is there anything I need to do to prepare for a smokier day if that shows up? So we had bought one Dyson air purifier filter for earlier in the summer and noticed when it was smoky that it wasn't adequate to keep the particulate matter levels in our house low when it was smoky. So I bought another one. So we're prepared for some of the uh, smoke that may come, but we do know that the forests are still quite dry. We have high water levels, but that has mostly come from BC, from upstream. And so we've got high water levels as well as dry forests and multiple fires still burning. So we definitely still have many weeks where we could have additional smoke, but right now we're giving thanks for this, the state of affairs that we've got. Now it's not just the Northwest Territories. Manitoba is also dealing with fires and smoke. I'm wondering what you're hearing from colleagues there. Well, it's compounding stressors. So people all across Canada are dealing with the healthcare worker shortage that we're seeing. I was talking to an RCMP member yesterday and he was telling me that his force is also seeing similar levels of burnout as well as uh, just people needing to take a break. And so I think a lot of our emergency services around the country are very stressed. And so that is meeting this population who's come from, you know, a really difficult couple of years with COVID and now they're displaced. And that always leads to really uh, a lot of mental health stressors, uh, financial stressors for people, the uncertainty of displacement of wondering when you're going to be able to get back into your home. When that happens, often people uh, haven't had a chance to bring their medications with them. So people will be trying to find their puffers in a new town, trying to access health services there. So really, there's a lot of disruption that is being met by a system that is not as rested as it has been maybe in other summers. Okay. And when air quality gets bad, people are told to stay inside. You talked about trying to keep your kids inside, away from the smoke. How helpful is that kind of advice? The advice works really well for short exposures. When it becomes difficult is when it 
lasts for a really long time. When this is more difficult uh, tends to be when people are underhoused, when they have many, many people living in one house, as we know uh, is the case in many Indigenous communities, many other communities of lower socioeconomic status in Canada. And this is an issue that uh, the Yellenites then were really concerned about when we were doing our study. They wanted to make sure that we put elements around housing and the need for funding to ensure that that we are, are building the uh, houses, the community centers with adequate uh, levels of uh, sealing in the envelope to keep the smoke out, but ventilation to make sure that the air quality inside is good. Knowing that this is going to be more consistent, making sure that we know who our most vulnerable people are and that they have access to either clean air shelters or an actual air filtration system at home ahead of time is very important. Now, now you've got the suggestion for this city, for Yellowknife, to open up indoor spaces for free. Obviously, these are spaces where there are shelters for for clean air. How would that work? It actually happened during the summer of 2014. It was the mayor's idea. He opened up the field house, which is our indoor recreation facility, and the pool, both for Yellowknifers and people who are in uh, the area to use for free, but also for the truckers because the truckers were getting stuck in Yellowknife due to closures of the highways. And so I think that what would be really helpful would likely be for every community to have that conversation and to come up with guidelines for when to open. We have a really wonderful mayor here now as well, Rebecca Alti, and I exchanged messages with her about this uh, about a week and a half ago when it was very smoky and she was gonna check in with city staff. But then, of course, it uh, cleared up right afterwards. And I think that just in terms of consistency of response, it would be better that it not be a continuous one-off thing from mayor to mayor, year to year, condition to condition, but really be you know a set of regulations that we write up that says if the air quality is over seven on a 24-hour basis for tw- 48 hours, all recreation facilities in a given center will be open up for free as clean air shelters and recreation facilities and places where people can socialize so as they don't so as not to feel isolated and will remain open for free until 24 hours after the air quality health index has returned to a three or lower. Do you think that's going to happen in Yellowknife? I think that that is very aligned with where the national adaptation strategy is going. I I think that on a one community level at this moment in time, that would require strong relationships between uh, someone like me and the city council. And because we're a small community and we all know one another, I think it's actually quite achievable. But for us to scale that and roll that out across the country, that's going to require the type of really de-siloed inter-level governmental and community collaboration that in fact is being envisioned as part of the national adaptation strategy. You've anticipated my next question, which is like, I gather that you see that that some of the solutions that you're proposing for Yellowknife working, you'd see them working in other communities across the country then. Yes, I've often found that Yellowknife is a really interesting lab where ideas can be tried out and evaluated and communicated quickly because we 
really benefit from that strength of relationship. And so a lot of adaptation is going to require us moving that what I think is a real strength of rural communities into larger community spaces. So there's that ground level knowledge of relationship, which helps you do things, helps you build trust, helps you respond quickly. Um, that's going to be required for us to take care of one another because the definition of a disaster is actually uh, an event that overwhelms systems. So almost by definition, to respond well and in a healthy way to disaster, we're going to have to really strengthen those community-based informal relationships. But that shows us what's possible. And then we can seek to replicate and scale that on a regional and national level. And I think that that's very, very possible. Dr. Courtney Howard, I hope you stay well in Yellowknife and thanks for talking to us. Thanks so much. It's been lovely to talk to you, Laura. For centuries, people have tried to control water for their own needs, damming it for power, changing its direction, and draining waterways to irrigate crops. But as climate change intensifies, disasters from flooding to drought are proving a point, according to our next guest. Erica Guise says water always wins. In fact, that's the name of her new book, subtitled Thriving in an Age of Drought and Deluge. Guys is a science journalist who splits her time between San Francisco and Victoria, which is where I've reached her. Erica Guys, hello. Hi, Laura. I'm happy to be here. Your book is focused, a lot of it is focused on solutions to these seemingly constant challenges of flooding and drought. And you say we need to find out what water wants. What do you mean by that? We are seeing a big increase in the severity of floods and droughts because of climate change. But One thing that people don't realize, I think, so much is that a lot of it is also due to our development choices. And in the dominant culture, we've had a real attitude of trying to control water for a few hundred years. And we see that in our cities, urban sprawl, industrial agriculture, and also the kind of concrete infrastructure that we use to try to control water. So dams, levees, stormwater drainage systems. But the reason that has dramatically increased the impacts of floods and droughts is because we've erased a lot of water's slow phases. The water no longer has a place to go. Um, We have actually eradicated 87% of the world's wetlands since 1700. And we have intervened on two-thirds of the world's great rivers. The area of our cities has doubled just since 1992. So if you think about all of these changes um, to the landscape and to the waterscape, you begin to understand why we're seeing a lot of flooding because water doesn't have space to slow and move into the underground. Um, But also that's why um, we're seeing problems with water scarcity as well because those groundwater systems are what feed streams in the dry season. And when you talk about water slowing down, I think of sort of meandering streams and rivers. And that slowness, you, you actually champion something you called slow water. Is that related to what you were just talking about? 
It is, yeah. So you're right. A natural stream has kind of a meandering S shape, and it's sometimes, you know, kind of braided channels across a floodplain. Um, and a lot of the water that we see around our human development is instead straight, channelized, sometimes has concrete walls. So it's very much not in its natural state. And a lot of the water processes that we've disrupted are the slow phases. So think about wetlands, floodplains, high altitude mountain meadows and forests that generate rain. So what water wants is a return of these spaces where it can slow down and move underground. How did you come to coin the term slow water? Is it, is it related to what, this slow food movement or something? Yeah, um, I guess I, I I noticed that all of the projects in which I was looking at um, the water detectives, as I call them, the people who are curious about what water wants, they were looking to restore water's slow phases. And I was definitely thinking in terms of the slow food movement, which, of course, uh, was meant to draw our attention to kind of the pitfalls of fast food and the, the global industrial food complex. The slow water movement works in conjunction with the local hydrology, ecology, and culture. And ideally, it is local water, just like slow food is ideally local. People with water scarcity tend to think like, oh, we'll just get some new water from somewhere else. But uh, an interesting 40-year overview looked at um, interventions on rivers around the world, and they brought water to 20% of the world's people, but took water away from 24% of the world's people. So, you know, it's not magic water. It's coming from somewhere. It's coming from some place. So um, you're decreasing availability for other people and for other ecosystems. Now, I want to actually get you to talk about something much closer to home before we take off to these countries around the world that you've been to uh, in pursuit of answers. I'm wondering how what you write about relates to a disaster like the flooding in the Fraser Valley in BC last, last year during the Atmospheric River event. So there's a really great book called Before We Lost the Lake by Chad Reimer, and it details the history of Sumas Lake. So that area that flooded that farmland in Abbotsford was, in fact, historically a lake. And it had a habit of expanding dramatically when there was a wet year. Sometimes high water would spread from Chilliwack all the way to Washington. Uh, the indigenous uh, Samath people lived there and uh, understood the lake cycles and kind of moved with it. But in the 1920s, um, the settlers drained it. They called it reclaiming <laughs> the land. But, you know, it's a great example of how water always wins. So what a lot of the water detectives I followed around the world are doing is studying and mapping something called historical ecology. So the idea is looking at where waterways and lakes and things like this existed wetlands also before we kind of imposed our will on them, because mapping that helps us to understand where water will go in this type of disaster. And just to make it clear, there there is some urgency to this because climate change is exacerbating both the number and the intensity of these kinds of events, are they not? Yes, very much so. For every one degree 
Celsius warming, the atmosphere can hold on average about 7% more water vapor. So that means when you do have a storm, it's likely to dump a lot more water, which we're seeing increasingly often. And then in dry areas, um, that same kind of phenomenon pulls more water out of the soil and plants and leaves things more desiccated. Okay, and that's exactly what we're seeing here in Canada and around the world. So first of all, let's head to Peru. I think what's happening there and what you reported about may resonate with Canadians as a lot of it is based in Indigenous knowledge and practice. How is the application of Indigenous knowledge and science adding to what they're trying to do there to fix their problems? Peru is one of the most water-insecure countries in the Western Hemisphere. It has a long dry season, uh, similar to California, but historically it relied on glaciers in the Andes that melted slowly throughout the year and would supply water throughout the dry season. Those glaciers are melting, and of course, the population is also growing, as it is pretty much everywhere around the world. And so those pressures um, are making the water crisis more intense. So in response, they have passed a series of laws over the past decade uh, requiring water utilities to invest upstream in um, watersheds. And before, doing something like that was considered a misuse of public funds, and now it's required. Um, So some of the things that they're doing is investing in these special high-altitude wetlands called cushion bogs or bofadales, and um, those hold water for a long time and then release them slowly. So they're important for both reducing floods and landslides and also providing water into the slow season. But the other really interesting project they're investing in is something called amunas. So amunas were invented about 1,400 years ago by the Wari people who lived in the Andes Mountains. And amunas are basically a little canal made with rocks And when the streams are running high in the wet season, they divert some of the water using the Samuna to these natural infiltration basins. So they're kind of bowls on the side of the mountain that are particularly porous. And the water would then infiltrate under the ground and then move down the mountain much more slowly than it would on the surface because the water is moving through the rock and the soil. And then it emerges from a stream lower down where they would harvest it and then use it to water their crops. Um, So in this way, they were able to extend water availability into the dry season and uh, continue to be able to support themselves with agriculture. So... The utility investments, some of them are going to restore some of these amunas throughout the Andes that had fallen into disrepair. And this can serve both the farmers and the cities. Um, The farmers can then harvest the water. They water their crops. But then a lot of that water uh, moves into the underground once again and ultimately ends up in the rivers that supply the capital city of Lima and other cities on the coastal plains. And one of the really amazing things about this is that people living in the Andes today who still use these amunas, they understand which infiltration basins correspond to which springs downstream. So they actually have kind of a map in their head of how water is moving through the underground, which is so fascinating um, because this is something that scientists around the world are, are studying today in different ways. And yet they have this traditional knowledge that they've um, passed down.
You're listening to What on Earth? I'm Laura Lynch, and I'm speaking with science journalist Erica Guise about her new book, What Water Wants. Now that brings me to one of my absolute favorite parts of the book, and it comes out of your home state in California. Tell me about paleo valleys and how they might make a huge difference when it comes to drought. Yeah, paleo valleys are a really interesting geological feature under the Central Valley of California. You know, there's mountains that run along the California-Nevada border. Those are the Sierra Nevadas. And then there are coastal mountain ranges. And in between, there's this vast valley, the Sacramento-San Joaquin Valley, or sometimes called the Central Valley. And it's about 75 miles wide and 400 miles long. And it's really the epicenter of agriculture in California. And historically, it was a massive floodplain. But if you drive there today, it's a very, very dry place, and the water that you see is in straight irrigation canals or it's being sprayed onto crops via sprinkler systems. So paleo valleys are the a feature that was created by the glacial cycles. So in California, it wasn't glaciated permanently or, or long-term the same way it was in Canada because it's further south. So the glaciers would come down from the north onto the Sierra Nevada mountains and, you know, be there for some thousands of years and then go back up north. And so these glacial cycles would create these deep valleys in the central valley, about a mile wide and 100 feet deep. And then as the glaciers were starting to recede, they would scour a lot of rock and rubble off of the mountains, and that would backfill this cut channel. And then eventually sediment would settle on top of it. And so then we see the valley floor and we don't really know that these deep channels are underneath. And so these channels, because they're filled with this big cobble, they're still the path that water wants to flow underground. Uh, So they're a really good way to do something called groundwater recharge. So I talked a bit about how we've been depleting groundwater, and partly that's happened in California because the rivers have been holstered and they're no longer accessing their floodplain and having that kind of natural recharge. But also when surface water has been scarce, people have pumped groundwater. But that's a fundamental misunderstanding of the surface groundwater relationship because, in fact, they're the same water. They're linked. So when you pump groundwater, um, you know, it's falling lower beneath us, and therefore it can't push up and supply the, the surface water streams. So one way people are trying to bring that more into balance is, you know, when you have a particularly wet time, you take the water and you put it over the surface of the ground so that it can move underground once again. And in California, we have atmospheric river storms like the one that created the flooding in the Sumas Lake area last November. Those are increasing in frequency and the quantity of water that they carry with climate change. So by storing water underground, you can help to restore the health of the groundwater system and also just be able to hold on to that wet water to help us get through the longer dry phases. So what's particularly cool about the Paleo Valleys is um, because they're so porous, if you can get that extra water on top of them, it will move underground very quickly and then more slowly move into the clays, and that helps to raise the water table across a larger area. 
We don't have paleo valleys in Canada, but we do have another naturally occurring helper, the mighty beaver. For so long, beavers, we've seen them as pests. They build dams that cause trouble for people living nearby. But you've actually rediscovered the beaver as a noble beast and a champion of how to live with nature instead of trying to conquer it. What did you find out in and around the city of Seattle? Yeah, uh, well, beavers are, in my opinion, the, the cutest water engineers. <laughs> And yeah, they have incredible abilities, uh, both to protect people from flooding, ironically, because people tend to think that they create flooding. That's what I thought, yeah. <laughs> um, and also to protect against drought and fire. So in the Western U.S., starting in Washington state, people are redeploying beavers. Interestingly, there has been a history in the U.S. almost since beavers were first protected, I think, in the early 1900s when they came close to being eradicated, of, of understanding that beavers actually are good for watershed health and reintroducing them into areas. Uh, so California was doing this. Idaho was doing this. Idaho was even using parachutes in the <laughs> Parachuting 1940s. Beavers? Yeah, right after um, <laughs> World War II, they were inspired by the Airborne Divisions because oh a lot of Idaho was so rural that there weren't really roads into the backcountry where they wanted to deploy the beavers. Did the beavers survive the, ju the jumps? They did. Okay. Um, as far as I'm aware, there was only one... Uh, casualty. Um, and that beaver managed to get out of his little crate. The crates are kind of designed to deconstruct upon right. landing. And so the way a beaver dam slows water is similar to with uh, the coronavirus pandemic, the principle of flattening the curve. So water still moves through the dam, but it just moves through much more slowly. So that means that you're not going to have the same height of flood peak because it's taking a longer period for the same quantity of water to flow downstream. That's a pretty simple concept, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know we're uh, hopscotching around the globe here, but uh, the next stop is China because there one man seems to have made a huge difference by coming up with this concept of sponge cities. I love that. But, but when I think of China, I think of just how much work has been done to conquer water, such as the Three Gorges Dam, which was an expensive and criticized piece of engineering. Um, how has that kind of development affected cities in China? Yeah, you're right. Um, China had its major development phase uh, over the last few decades, where a huge amount of the population moved from rural areas to cities. And so they were building cities like crazy, expanding them, building some from scratch. Unfortunately, um, they copied a lot of the mistakes that Western development made in terms of urban sprawl, in terms of giant dam infrastructure. And so there's kind of a course correction. In standard urban development, we really have this paved approach where you know, we have streets and sidewalks and parking lots and buildings. And in all of these ways, we've removed permeable surfaces where water can move into the ground. So there are different ways that we can make room for water within an existing city. One project I looked at was a river that had been straightened and holstered into concrete, like so many that we see in our cities today. And they basically took out the concrete and widened the bed for the river. And um, 
in this case, it was still quite heavily managed. So one area was just going to be for the natural river flow. There was sort of a walkway down the middle. And on the other side, that was going to be filled with half-treated sewage with a series of wetlands. So the wetlands would further treat the sewage. And then during the monsoon, when they needed the extra space, that sewage would be treated industrially and that space would be allocated to the natural water that was coming. So that's a great way uh, that they're able to absorb more water. Other ways to make space for water within a city are bioswales. And that's something I see in Victoria. Downtown, alongside the sidewalks, you'll see these kinds of planted areas. And if you look at them, they're actually a little bit of a trough and they're meant to harvest runoff and then allow it to move into the soil more slowly. And those plants are water-loving plants, um, so they thrive uh, when the water comes. It's nice to hear that there's some things happening in Canada that are doing well (laughs) by water too. Yeah. I mean, one thing I think is really interesting is um, buyouts after floods. So Buyouts? Right. So (laughs) an area that floods regularly, sometimes the government of a country might try to buy out the landowner. And in the United States, that often doesn't work because of laws that sort of require government to protect property. But Canada is trying more of a tough love approach in some jurisdictions where they say, okay, you know, we'll give you the money one time to buy out your property so that you can move elsewhere. But if you choose to rebuild, you know, that's it. It, It's a one-time deal. We're not going to just keep using taxpayer money again and again. So that kind of recognizes the reality of what water is doing. And it makes other people nearby safer because it's giving water more space. There is so much more we could talk about. I, we, we didn't even touch on what's happening in the Netherlands, so, but we're going to have to leave it there for now. Erica, guys, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure to be here. Lies, damned lies, and statistics. That old saying is getting a new life with a push to put climate statistics front and center in Canada. It's a way to inform the public and government about the state of the climate crisis. Rob Smith is an environmental economist with Midsummer Analytics and the former director of environment statistics at Statistics Canada. And I managed to say all that without stumbling too much. Hello. Hi, Laura. So we're going to talk about statistics that are related to climate change, but I I actually want to start with some numbers listeners may be more familiar with. That's the GDP or the gross domestic product. The government releases that information monthly. Can you just sort of generally tell me what it is and and why it's released so frequently? Sure. Well, GDP measures something pretty simple, what we call income, in this case, the income of the nation. It sort of represents what we have as a nation to spend on goods and services. So it measures the income that everybody in the economy earns, people, businesses, corporations, and and so on. And it's considered important because economists feel that it is a leading indicator of the health of the economy. So if GDP is going up, things are generally considered to be moving in the right direction. If GDP is stagnant or even worse, uh, going down, then alarm bells start ringing uh, in in Ottawa and uh, Toronto and uh, St. John's and so on. And calls for a change, of course, will, will be made very quickly. 
So how do businesses then benefit from knowing about it? What, what do they do with the information? Well, I mean, an individual business owner may not track uh, what GDP is doing for any reason other than just to get a sense of the health of the economy. But that's really important to an individual business owner. If you're making, a, say, an investment decision, you want to know, am I making that decision in the context of a healthy economy or, or not? And right now, the way that we define a healthy economy is, is one in which GDP is growing. So an individual business owner would look to GDP statistics as an indicator of whether or not now is a good time to be investing. Most people probably wouldn't make a major investment during an economic downturn. But when you know GDP is growing robustly, people are more willing to take risks. Let's talk climate then. In contrast, greenhouse gas emission statistics are released once a year. Why the difference? Well, that's a good question. Why the difference indeed? You know, when I worked at StatsGen, which is 10 years ago now, at my peak when I was director there, I had about 50 staff, but it was usually uh, quite a bit fewer than that. If you compare that with my colleagues who were directors in the various divisions that looked after economic and social statistics, collectively, those directors would have had hundreds and thousands of, of employees. So there was, you know, a considerable imbalance in the allocation of statistical resources. But that's not just true of, of StatsGen, that's true across the government in general, that there's a, an imbalance of resources devoted to collection of data related to the environment versus collection of data um, related to the economy and society. And why do you think that is? Well, I, I think that reflects the general societal bias, doesn't it, uh, in, in, in terms of, of what matters to people. In the end, it's a, a political decision whether an environment should come first, second, or, or third. But it needs to be a decision made on, on the basis of, of evidence. And uh, unfortunately, I don't think we provide people with timely enough or uh, simply uh, quantitatively enough evidence to be making those judgments. Did you try to change that when you were in government? Well, I, I certainly did. Myself and my colleagues made all sorts of proposals for improving environment statistics, some of which got accepted and, and, and others of which were rejected. But there's no question that we had fewer resources to spend than, than colleagues did in other parts of, of the agency. But I have to say, Environment and Climate Change Canada does put out an annual report looking at, at GHG emissions. What do you think of that? It, it, it does indeed. So it's called the National Inventory Report. And it's, a, it's an obligation uh, of all parties to the UN Climate Change Convention to submit those kinds of reports. So pretty much every country in the world does one. And they're good reports. They're voluminous. I, I think Canada's report runs to 600 pages or something. So, you know, for anybody who's interested in the details of Canada's greenhouse gas emissions, it's not like no information is available. On the contrary, lots of information is available. My concern is the timeliness of that information and the frequency. So let's talk first about the timeliness. When that inventory report is published, the emissions to which it refers are already two years old. For example, the 2022 emissions report talks about emissions in 2020. The report is only released once a year. So if we contrast that with what the public is offered in terms of uh, what I call the statistical diet, that is the diet of information that the government provides to, uh, to the public, you know, this, the, the economic diet is very rich. You know, people are offered it on a very regular basis. So in the case of quarterly GDP, for example, we know what happened to GDP in, say, the first quarter uh, of 2022 
by sometime well within the second quarter of 2022. That's quite remarkable. And that requires uh, an enormous devotion of statistical resources to publish those data so quickly. And I think the signal that that sends to people is that, look, this is really important stuff. The concern that I have there is, is that, you know, we've got an issue of global significance and certainly national significance uh, called climate change. And we aren't, you know, providing people with statistics that are of equal robustness to what they get in the world of economic and social statistics. But what difference would it make if, if we were getting this information more frequently? So let's, let's just think of one recent decision that was made. The government decided to invest in the Trans Mountain Pipeline out, out west. You know, and that was a controversial decision, and it, it, it ultimately went through, and it has obvious consequences for both uh, the climate and for the economy. I think it's plausible to suggest that had Canadians become accustomed to a more regular and robust diet of data on the environment over the years, in the same way that they've become accustomed to that regular diet of information in, in terms of the economy and, and the society, that they would pay greater attention to environmental matters, and that therefore decisions like the decision to invest in Trans Mountain might be subject to greater scrutiny from everybody, from people like you as a, as a journalist, from, from people like me as a professional, but just from average Canadians talking to you know, their, their MPs and, and, and so on and so on. You know, what gets measured appears to matter to people, and uh, therefore they, they, they take it seriously. Um, and if we measure things less frequently, less well, I think that sends an implicit signal that those things don't matter as much as the things that we spend a lot of resources measuring. So here's your chance. You're back in Statistics Canada. In your imagination, you're in charge. If you could, right. if you could reimagine how climate data is gathered and reported, what would you do? What would it look like? Well, one of the things that I tried to do um, was to suggest that uh, greenhouse gas emissions should be measured on a quarterly basis the same way that GDP is measured. Uh, it, it struck me that, that there's no reason why Canadians should know any less frequently or with any less timeliness what's happening with greenhouse gas emissions than, than they should know uh, what's happening with, with GDP. Uh, other countries have gone ahead and started measuring greenhouse gas emissions on a quarterly basis. So the Netherlands were the first, I, I think, if I remember. Sweden was, I think, second. But now, I think really importantly, the European Union has decided to start publishing quarterly greenhouse gas emissions for every EU member state. So just starting earlier this year, they began publishing those statistics. Are there other climate change statistics that aren't reported that should be or reported more frequently than they are? Another change that, that I would like to see uh, and that, that I make if I were in charge is to begin to consider climate as an asset, as something that we all benefit from collectively and that we need to therefore steward and, and manage collectively. So we need to think of the climate as a source of national wealth and, and well-being. And if we looked at the climate from that perspective as an asset, I think we would be more inclined to make investments in the protection of that asset when it was evident that the asset was being depleted. 
because we do that in other areas all the time. When we see a bridge that's all rusty and crumbling and whatnot, what do we do? We, we don't ignore the bridge. We repair the bridge, or sometimes we tear it down and we build a new bridge. But we don't do that with climate, it seems anyway. <laughs> There's plenty of evidence that the climate is rusty and, and crumbling, um, but we don't seem as, as inclined to make the investments to bring the, the, the climate back into shape in the same way that we uh, would do with a bridge if it were crumbling. Anyway, so th this is a whole, I think, interesting area of, of, uh, to explore this idea of uh, environment as a source of wealth. It is. I mean, I should point out that there, there are moves, certainly moves by governments to, to look to nature-based solutions, marine reserves, other protected areas, um, which is sort of what you're talking about. But, but you want the public to have a ready-made statistical framework of, of what the value is of essentially nature as it is. Yes, that's right. And, and in fact, that, that statistic framework is, it does exist. Um, there was a, a brilliant piece of work published last year by the Cambridge economist uh, Partha Dasgupta called The Review of the Economics of Biodiversity. And in that review, he sets out this wealth framework for thinking about the environment as an element of wealth. And indeed, for thinking of other elements of the wealth portfolio. Um, human capital and social capital and, and so on. This emerging wealth framework is, is really interesting, I think, because it provides a single analytical framework within which governments could think consistently and make consistent decisions across pretty much all of the dimensions of well-being, social, environmental, economic, and, and so on. Governments should move beyond GDP as the central measure of, of national progress and should be should should complement GDP with other measures that present a different perspective. And this wealth framework, we think, is the most important complement to GDP. It's the most important missing piece of the decision makers toolbox right now. It's been an interesting conversation, Rob Smith. Thank you. I appreciate it, Laura. Thank you for uh, offering me the chance. Now, we reached out to Greg Peterson for a response, and that's because he's the Assistant Chief Statistician responsible for Economic and Environmental Statistics at Statistics Canada. And he says the agency is considering reporting GHG emissions four times a year. In order for us to produce good quality GHG emission data, we need that that really solid uh, information on, on energy consumption, and not just kind of an aggregate number of what energy is used, uh, but really uh, driving down into uh, sort of consumption by industry. And, uh, you know, currently we only have that data available on an annual basis. The agency is taking a look at how we could uh, kind of improve on the timeliness and the frequency of that information, uh, taking a look at some other countries. They are starting to produce uh, this type of information on a quarterly basis. Uh, so we are taking a look at their methodology and we're examining how we might be able to replicate that in Canada. And as for that idea of trying to statistically measure the value of nature in Canada, well, stay tuned. Maybe there'll be something on that in the future. that music is supposed to indicate success <laughs> and we've got a little bit of a success story because we love to hear about listeners climate action 
David Hollingworth was on the show a few weeks ago. He's a paramedic on Vancouver's downtown east side. He told us he was working to get his union to recognize a worker's right to drive a clean energy vehicle. I had been very concerned about the climate crisis for a long time. I had been making a lot of effort in my life to reduce my carbon footprint. And it occurred to me, why should a worker have a right to a workplace free of secondhand smoke, free of secondhand e-vapor, but I have to be subjected to the exhaust from vehicles and the nasty smells and the toxic effects of fuel. We feel that workers should have a right to an exhaust and toxic fuel free work environment. The second way that's very easy to look at it is that a worker should have a right to do no harm to future generations. The last time we heard from him, Hollingsworth Union threw its support behind his initiative. But now he has even better news to share. His employer, BC Emergency Health Services, or BCEHS, is rolling out an EV pilot project. It's planning to test out seven electric vehicles this fall, including one electric ambulance, which it says will be the first e-ambulance in Canada. I've been working on this initiative for five years now. And so for me, it was a sense of relief and satisfaction. Hollingworth has reason to be satisfied and relieved. As a healthcare worker, he's all too familiar with the health risks of a changing climate. We all see the reports of the extreme heat happening all over the world and all the other extreme weather events that are happening. And this is real suffering, real medical problems. So seeing my fellow union members, seeing BCEHS take this step, it just makes so much sense to me. I feel like these electric vehicles could be the wedge that really breaks open a larger crack for some significant deployment of clean energy vehicles and a service such as ours addressing its carbon emissions. And I'm really excited to see where it goes. I think it's going to lead to some really positive change. Okay, over to you listeners. Tell us what climate action are you taking in your community? We want to hear from you. You can email us anytime at earth at cbc.ca. That is it for us this week. Our show was produced by associate producer Danielle Piper and producers Rachel Sanders and Molly Siegel. Our audio engineers this week are Anna Park and George Baker. Our senior producer is Kim Kasher. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.